0: The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington.
1: Well, we're in chapter 4, verse 12 of Matthew. We have finished with the the desert temptation of the Messiah, and we're moving on now to The first, his first calling of disciples, the ministry as, if we can use that term, whatever term you want to call it, uh, his active teaching, ministry, and role as he went about the countryside of the Galil and and then in in Judea, Uh, uh, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And the passage, the section that we're looking at is uh, verses 12 through 17. Now when Yeshua heard that Yochanan had been taken into custody he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death Upon them a light dawned. From that time, Yeshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now as Yeshua was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Shimon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. You have to believe that Matthew uh, thought he was writing to uh, some city folk because he says they were casting a net into the sea. And then he has to add, well, that's because they were fishermen. Like, oh, well, what else would they have been if they were casting a net into the sea? Doesn't that strike you as just slightly redundant? Is there any other reason why you cast a net into the sea? Okay. All right. So the comment is made. Uh, maybe it's, uh, it's just explanatory by way of uh, the way the language is. I don't know. That just struck me as that just struck me as as a bit strange. They were fishermen, you know. Of course, they were fishermen. They were casting a net into the sea. Uh, and, unless uh, he was talking to a bunch of land lovers who had never, never seen such a thing. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the comment is made that it ties in nicely to the to the next phrase. I will make you fishers of men. Yeah, they could have been crabbers. Yeah, I don't. Are there crabs in uh, in the in the Sea of Galilee? I don't think so. A lot of catfish, a lot of St. Peter's fish. I don't even know what kind of fish that is, but it's... uh, It's It's tilapia. Oh, tilapia. Okay. Well, it's not really worth eating, actually. Oh, you love it? But you don't get anything. All you get is bones. No? Okay, apparently the person that gave it to us didn't know how to prepare it too well. All right. All right. All right, so verse 12. Now. When Yeshua heard that Yokanan had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Matthew is not always concerned with giving us precise chronological data, as we have discovered. As this narrative stands, it might appear that the news regarding Yokanan's imprisonment and Yeshua's return to the Galil came immediately after the desert temptation. Doesn't it sound like, okay, he's done being tempted, Satan leaves him, now he hears that Yokanan's uh, imprisoned and he leaves for the north, right? He leaves uh, the Judean area and goes north uh, to, the, to the Galilee. Well, in fact, the synoptics appear to imply that Yeshua's ministry began in the Galil. We don't have him saying anything, really, until he goes up north to, to Galilee. However, if we read John's Gospel, it indicates that Yeshua had an active ministry in Judea at the same time as Yolfinan Hamad Beel, the, the baptizer before he, re- he returned north to the, Gal- the, the Galilee via Samaria. So John seems to have him teaching and, 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 and doing some things in Judea before he returns and goes up to the Galilee. And then he comes back south from the Galilee to Judea when he finally is brought back to Jerusalem and, and when he uh, has his, his final time uh, and his final Passover and then his death. This being the case, we may question why the synoptics are silent about Yeshua's earliest months of the ministry. So you have to understand, we have skipped over some time here. And if we didn't have the Gospel of John, we wouldn't know that. Carson gives the following suggestions. Since Yohanan had been removed from the scene through his imprisonment, Yeshua's ministry entered a new phase, which is the focal point of the synoptic Gospels. They therefore begin the story of Yeshua's ministry at this point. In other words, the synoptics, particularly Mark, and again, is Mark the first gospel that was written? And did did Matthew and Luke use his gospel? That's the prevailing theory. Not everyone agrees with it, Uh, but that's the prevailing theory. If that's the case, Mark is very short. Mark is very succinct. He's taking one clear slice that he wants to, out out of the, the, the end of the life of Yeshua, and he's concentrating on that. So, he's not giving us a whole lot of preliminary. You know, he doesn't even tell us about his birth. I mean, as important as the birth of Yeshua is, Mark does not even mention it. So, he is centering, you know, maybe he knew he only had a certain amount of parchment left. You know, I've only got enough for this. And so, he had to decide, where should I begin? And uh, he began in the in the northern in the ministry of Yeshua in the Galil, which is the most significant part of his uh, the beginning of his ministry, so Carson is saying perhaps that's why the other Gospels the Synoptics, Matthew and Luke, follow suit. a second uh, a reason or suggestion is that John and his gospel may have been directing his story particularly to the disciples of Yochanan Hamat Beel. Remember in acts nineteen, remember the disciples they meet Paul and Paul asks them who you know, have you received the Spirit? And they said, We didn't even know He was given. And come to find out, they're they're the disciples of Yochanan, John the Baptist, and they'd been living out in the desert and and was were totally out of touch with what had gone on at that Shovel in Jerusalem. So it's possible that John was writing his gospel with these, some of these in mind, and thus he includes the time when the ministry of Yeshua and Yochanan overlapped. It would only make sense that if you wanted to have an appeal to the disciples of Yochanan Hamatbil, that you would include the the era of time when Yeshua and and Yochanan were both ministering together, as it were, uh, in Judea. Our number three suggestion for Matthew, the Galil holds particular significance as fulfillment of prophecy, as we will see, and especially as the fulfillment of the Gospel's extension to all nations, which is where Matthew's Gospel is going to end up. In 28:19, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, and so forth. Thus, he focuses upon Yeshua's ministry that began in the Galil. All of those are possible. Um, Other than that, there's not much we can say. We may therefore presume that some months had elapsed between the desert temptation and Yeshua's journey north to the Galil via Samaria, that is, between verses 11 and 12 of our chapter. So we've had some time uh, elapsed that we're not told about. Now, Herod Antipas ruled over both Perea, where Yochanan was arrested, and the Galil. So Yeshua's withdrawal, which literally means to return, was not for the sake of leaving Herod's domain of rule. He wasn't trying to get outside of Herod's uh, long arm of uh, jurisdiction because, obviously, Herod uh, ruled the north as well. Rather, it may have been that Yeshua recognized the immediate danger of being arrested himself and thus left the immediate area where he would have likewise been sought by Herod's police. The earlier threat against Yeshua as a newborn appears to have been renewed and it was therefore prudent for him to withdraw in order to carry out his ministry. It is clear, however, that Yeshua's withdrawal to the Galil in no way curbed the enthusiasm of the people for Yochanan's message, for Yeshua himself continues to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is not until chapter 14, verse 3, that we are given the reason for Yochanan's imprisonment. The desert prophet had denounced the debauchery of Herod's marriage to Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, and as a result, was thrown into prison and eventually executed. So, can you just see um, John the Baptist, Yokanan Hamakbil, in his uh, less than perfumed outfit, um, uh, pointing his bony finger at Herod and saying, you know, you have overstepped the Torah, you have taken your brother's wife, and this is uh, an abomination. And you could imagine that if uh, Yochanan and Yeshua uh, were linked together, as they undoubtedly were, that when Herod had Yochanan arrested, uh, it, it gave every reason to think that Yeshua would have been arrested as well. You say, well, was Yeshua afraid of that? No, but it wasn't the time. It was not the right time. And we have this in uh, several other times in the gospel where, you know... Uh, Things occur, and he says, "My time is not yet. It's not the right time yet for for the end to come." So, you know, we, we, there is a bit of a problem. I have that in a side note. Herodias, according to Josephus, was not the uh, wife of Philip. Uh, so we'll have to deal with that when we get to chapter fourteen. But we do know that Herod Antipas. Well, all of I mean, numbers of these Herods were the worst kinds of rulers. They, they, they executed their own father, their own mother. They executed their own brothers. They executed their wife. And it was not above them at all to execute uh, a family member in order to take their wife uh, to themselves. So uh, these, were, these were the lowest kinds of, of rulers. And uh, Yeshua was, uh, we can understand why it would have been prudent for him to remove himself from the immediate area where he would have been sought. Uh, not that he would necessarily be able to hide out in the Galil because, you know, but at least he removed himself from that area. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in or Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Yet it, it doesn't even tell us that he got to Nazareth when it tells us he leaves it. So he went, uh, we should understand that when he went north to the Galil, he went home and home was Nazareth. But he didn't stay there for very long. According to Luke in chapter four, and we have uh, perhaps a similar uh, notice in Matthew 13. Yeshua's ministry in his hometown of Nazareth was initially received. In other words, when he first—how many of you have ever been to Capernaum? Okay, a few of you. So you remember the—you remember the—you uh, probably have a good visual picture of that synagogue, right? Yeah. I, I uh, perhaps I'll bring some pictures of these times and show you the synagogue there there's a 4th century synagogue that was built on top of a 2nd century foundation and there's some indication that the, the foundation stone of the 2nd century uh, synagogue was actually older there were parts of it that seemed to, to go into the 1st century so this was no doubt the place where Yeshua uh, in the gospels account came and, and taught and so forth when he first was there uh, they, they marveled his teaching, they just couldn't believe it. Um, but then he he said he you know he said you'll probably say to me, physician, heal yourself. Uh, he uses that phrase. In other words, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, and so you're going to put me in in dire straits. And now you, and then you're going to say you're so smart about how to make everything right, make yourself right. At this point, you know. In other words. And what did he do to cause such consternation? He said, Well, he said, when God wanted to pour out his spirit in the days of Elijah, when Elijah went, who did he minister to? Some widow from Zarephath. Well, Zarephath is not, that's not Jewish country. And when um, Elisha wanted to show the power of God, whom did he heal? Naaman. Some foreigner, some pagan foreigner. And so essentially what he was telling the people there is that God's favor is just as much, or even in some cases, more so upon the Gentiles than upon Y'all. And that did not go over well. And if you remember the the account in, in Luke, they 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 rose up out of the synagogue and they drug him out of the synagogue and they took him to a place where there was a cliff and they were ready to throw to push him over. I mean they had, had it; they were ready to lynch this guy right there and then so to speak, and it says he passed through their midst. Yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. The comment is being made that Naaman was from uh, the uh, area of Assyria, and the, uh, Assyria was the arch enemy of, of Israel and had taken uh, Israel into captivity. In fact, uh, as we'll mention a little later, who were the first two tribes to be taken into captivity? Anybody remember? I didn't either, I had to look it up. It was Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the first two tribes taken. And here we are in the region of Zevolun and Naphtali. So they may have had a lingering hatred even more than the other tribes for Assyria. And so when uh, when Yeshua brings up Elisha's, uh, the mercies of God that came through Elisha to Naaman, that was just probably more than they could handle. As I have said before, all the way through our gospel, we're going to have this theme, this undercurrent that's running all the way through of Yeshua's... Uh, uh, perspective and approach to the Gentiles. He has the Gentiles in mind. Even though he is in his present work in the Gospels as we see his life, he is directing himself towards the lost house of Israel. He has the, the, the Gentiles in mind. It is his perspective that ultimately all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham's seed of whom he was uh, the, the fulfillment. And uh, we could, you could say, well, that's how Matthew writes it. Because he's writing after the fact. Okay, fine, well and good. I still think what Matthew gives us is accurate and that Yeshua had that in mind. Um, I would love to sit down with a few of my fellow teachers from various groups and study the book of Matthew with that in mind. Uh, It just seems like this is something that is being neglected and overlooked in the current debates over, particularly within Messianic Judaism, is the place that Yeshua held in his heart for the Gentiles, and I'm not saying that those who are uh, saying Messianic Judaism is only for Jews don't have a heart for Gentiles. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that what? How does that heart for Gentiles work its way out? N- nothing seems to me more clear in the in this book of Matthew, as well as in all of the Gospels, that Yeshua did not envision in any way, shape, or form two peoples worshiping in two separate places, uh, drawn with two separate Gospels. Or and and somehow functioning within two separate realms under two separate uh, forms of holiness. Uh, He sees the Gentiles eating at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and that's uh, that's what we see here. And that's why they didn't like him in Nazareth. And so he left Nazareth and he came and settled in Capernaum. And uh, we say it in English, Capernaum. Capernaum, what does that mean? Village of Nahum? Or does it mean village of consolation? My studies, uh, I couldn't find anything that clearly, without any doubt, linked it to Nahum. It's the, it is the popular approach, the village of Nahum. But is this Nahum the prophet, or is it some other Nahum? I don't know. Nahum, of course, means consolation, so it could just as well be village of consolation. It's located on the northwest shore of the Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee. It became the base for Yeshua's ministry. According to Mark, uh, it is Yeshua's home. So even though Nazareth was his home as a boy growing up, when it came to his final uh, work as uh, an adult in his ministry, Gopharnachum was the home base. It was a fishing village and thus demanded the presence of a tax collector's booth. Midrash Rabbah, Ecclesiastes eight notes the presence of Minim. Minim is the word that the rabbis use for uh, heretics or for dissidences. Uh, and sometimes it could mean believers in Yeshua. And in this case, it does. If you want a very interesting read, if you have Midrash Rabbah, read this passage. Um, it talks about numbers of occurrences where famous rabbis were confronted by Minim and their responses, and it's it's quite interesting. But the very fact that it lists Minim in Kepharna Hum, even though this is late, um, may indicate that there was a, a growing gathering of followers of Yeshua in that place the ancient village is known in the Arabic as tel Hum. probably Hum is related to Nahum, where the ruins of a synagogue dating to the second century as I've said, have been unearthed Peter's house is traditionally located a mere stone's throw from the synagogue, I try to remember uh, would you say 30 yards? 50 yards? yeah, maybe maybe 30 yards? 35 yards? 50? okay, yeah right Right, if that's the right spot. Right. Um, it, now, you know, the, 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 if you've been there, some of you haven't, obviously, but when you see Peter's house, P- Peter's house became, according to tradition, a meeting place for Christians. And as a result, there have been several churches throughout the centuries built at that place. And the, um, the Catholic Church actually owns that, don't they? Owns that whole area. Right, and then they built this church over the top of it that when you first look at it, in my mind, the first thing I thought was spider. Because there are ruins underneath, the digs of the house itself, Peter's house. And the last church that was uncovered, you know, it's built in the round, typical of churches in the 6th, 7th century. And so you see all of that underneath, and they didn't want to disturb that, but because to the Roman Catholic Church it's such a holy site, they wanted to have a church that actually met there. They built this modern monstrosity on on what appears to be kind of arching uh, beams, large beams, so it's kind of arching over the top, so you can still look underneath and see the ruins and uh, of of the ancient house. And here you are, you come into Kepharna and you see the synagogue with the pillars and and all of the old stoneware, and, I mean, everything is ancient. And you look over here, and you've got this thing that looks like it was built in the 80s, or I don't know when. It's just terrible. I don't know, what color is it? It, 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 Pinkish. Concrete, yeah. It's ugly. It's just flat ugly. Yeah. And I, I suppose the Israeli Antiquity Authority didn't have anything to say about it. You know, if they had, they probably would have... Why didn't they just build it out of Jerusalem stone and make it look old? I mean that at least would have blended in with the but yeah, okay. well, yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah, it had to be right over the site in order to get the blessing that you're supposed to get, yeah, right right Exactly. Yeah, the comments being made that the at, at it was it was well known as uh, They had olive presses there. And when you go into the the tourist area now, you'll see a large basalt. Uh, stone olive presses. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty impressive. So when Yeshua said it would be better to, that uh, someone have a millstone around their neck than that one of these little ones should perish, he probably was just pointing. And the same thing may be said of some of his other words that are, were spoken in that synagogue in Capernaum, where he talked about himself as the bread of life. And uh, above the lintel of the uh, synagogue... And in, in, on one of them, there's the, the uh, sign of the Ten Commandments. And next, and on each side, if I remember correctly, I have to look and see, but either that one or the other door, there are shocks of wheat. And it's possible that he said, I'm the, the bread of life, you know, that kind of thing. So I, there, there's a lot of uh, things that come alive when you listen to his words in that setting. Ultimately, of course, the location of the village on the shores of the Kinneret link it to Matthew's use of the Isaiah prophecy that follows. Matthew is using Gezerah Shavah Gezerah Shavah literally means a stringing of pearls or a stringing of things together what what was typical of the rabbis is that they would if they found verses that had the same words in them they would gather those verses together and link them so uh, Matthew is tr- is linking us to Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And what is it going to say in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2? It says, On the way to the sea, Zebulun, Naphtali, and so forth. So he's, he's, he's putting in these verses the things that we need to see in order for us to start thinking of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which have all of these words in them. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, one of the things that the NASB is is, uh, renowned for, some people love it, some people hate it, is they capitalize words that they believe, as translators, are referring to God or to Yeshua. And you'll notice in this translation that they have capitalized both... Times the word light I think they're right now that's, that still is an interpretive thing but I think they're right and we'll see why the quote from, is from Isaiah 9 1 through 2 as I said in the Hebrew it's actually 8 verses 23 through 9 1 it's the fifth of ten quotes introduced by Matthew with the fulfillment formula this was to fulfill and this is the first from Isaiah we have several others and on page 133, I've given you the quote in its three uh, forms, the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, or LXX, and then Matthew's uh, text. I spent way too much time on this today. Um, there are, w- When you study the Septuagint uh, version of this, you will see that there are all kinds of variants that have come into the text. My suspicions are that scribes of the Septuagint text in the later centuries, say third, fourth, fifth, sixth century, were influenced by Matthew. And that they that they had a tendency to, to to try to conform the Greek translation of Isaiah nine, one through two to be in line with what Matthew what they knew of Matthew. And that's because Matthew's quote does not exactly conform to either the Masoretic text or the Septuagint. In fact it's it sounds to me like the kind of thing that someone would give in a midrash, a sermon, where he was simply alluding to, he quoting certain phrases, but alluding to a well-known text. Remember, Isaiah nine is a huge messianic text, right? Because you have nine five or nine six in the in the English. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, right? Mighty God. Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. These are all uh, strongly Messianic terms. So for Matthew to have... He's quoting the beginning of this chapter. And what is the beginning of this chapter? Is essentially, if you look at the context, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first tribes to be taken away by Assyria. And what Isaiah is saying, you're going to be the first tribes that are going to be blessed in the same way that God has, has punished you and in, in many times over, he's going to bless you. If he started by punishing Naphtali and, and Zebulun, he will start by blessing them first. And he said, you know, even though in the past you've been in distress and so forth and so on, now the glory of light is going to shine upon you. And how is that going to happen? Well, then the following verses tell us. Government will be on his shoulders. And so it, it all is a very messianic uh, context. But I think Matthew is giving us kind of a Midrashic translation rather than reflecting something that came before the Septuagint or variants to the Hebrew text. He takes the phrase "by way of the sea" as a description of Zevolun and Naphtali You see in the in the Matthew it says "The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea by the way of the sea, therefore kind of defines Zebulun and Naphtali. But if you look in the Hebrew, but there will no, be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. So he's leaving out certain phrases and he's kind of reconstructing uh, according to his memory. As far as Matthew is concerned, Galilee of the Gentiles is equivalent to Zebulun and Naphtali and the coastal regions they encompass. The Masoretic text uses the phrase in connection with the path the glorious work of restoration by the Almighty will take while the Septuagint lists it as either a third region that is in addition to Zebulun and Naphtali. If you look at the Septuagint it says act, act quickly O land of Zebulun land of Naphtalim Na- Na- and the rest inhabiting the seacoast. So it sounds as though those inhabiting the seacoast is, is a third region. Matthew takes it as equivalent to the regions of Zebulun and uh Naphtali. Yeah. Where where the, the question being asked were they first go to location. Yeah, sure, of course. They were uh they were easy pickings. Yeah, they were easy to get to. Right. They were the frontier. Uh on the other side of the Jordan connects to Yokonan's ministry in Perea, right, where he was uh where he was baptizing. So if we have Yeshua uh on the other side of the Jordan and now we have him in the Goil, we have Isaiah's can you see what Matthew's saying here? this is this is Isaiah's prophecy. He's in the he's in the Galil, the place where the Gentiles are. That's the region of, of Zebulun and Naphtali. He's come from the other side of the Jordan, right? He starts with his baptism on the other side of the Jordan. This all fits. All of these phrases are then put together by Matthew to see how they fit with uh, Isaiah's prophecy. The fact that Matthew uses the Septuagint spelling for Naphtali, he puts an amem at the end, Naphtalim. It sounds like giants. <laughs> yeah the Nephilim it's slightly different but uh, shows some dependence upon the subject there are other few changes I, get, I lift those to you, uh, list those for you nothing of great consequence but there is little doubt that Matthew has given a midrashic rendering of the text in order to make his point but his quote is not a misquote but simply emphasizes the parts of the Isaiah text that are most germane to his story and purpose moreover it does not do any con- uh, violation to the context as a whole The way that Matthew quotes it fits what Isaiah is saying. So he's not, he may be paraphrasing to a certain extent at some points, but he's not misquoting at all. It may be that Matthew brings this quote into his gospel in order to counter an already known argument by Yeshua's detractors that, quote, no prophet is to arise from the Galilee. Right? His detractors said, look, go search anywhere you want. It never says that there's going to be a prophet that arises from from the Galilee. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Of course not.
0: This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com.
1: Isaiah's prophecy, those who dwell in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, a region, from Isaiah's perspective, that would be dominated by Gentile populations, would see a great light. In the rabbinic literature, light is sometimes a metaphor for the Messiah. For instance, in Midrash Rabbah, Genesis 1.6, we read, they're working on this line from Daniel 2.22, He knoweth what is in the darkness. This too refers to the deeds of the wicked, as it is written, and their works are in the darkness, from Isaiah. And the light dwelleth on him. Another, uh, the second phrase from Daniel uh, 2.22 refers to the deeds of the righteous, as it is written, light is sown for the righteous. Psalm one ninety seven eleven. Rabbi Abba of Serun Gaia, and by the way, this is another, this is an uh, Aramaic uh, name for Tiberius. So it's right in the region of Kafarnahum. Rabbi Abba said, And the light dwelleth with him alludes to the royal Messiah. The tribal ancestors, this is from Midrash Rabba Genesis 85.1. The tribal ancestors were engaged in selling Joseph. Jacob was taken up with his sackcloth and fasting. And Judah was busy taking a wife, while the Holy One, blessed be he, was creating the light of Messiah. Thus, and it came to pass at that time. That is, the union of Judah and Tamar furthered the Messianic line. Before she travailed, she brought forth. So the rabbis regularly uh, uh, connect light with the Messiah. Likewise, the rabbis recognize the messianic prophecy in the following text of Isaiah 9 6. Another explanation He said to him, I have yet to raise up the Messiah of whom it is written, for a child is born to us, until I come unto my Lord, unto Sair. Genesis 38, 14, Rabbi Shmuel ben Nachman said, We have searched all the scriptures, and we have nowhere found it stated that Jacob ever came together with Esau at Seir. What then is the meaning of unto Seir? Jacob meant to say to him, I have yet to raise up judges and saviors to exact punishment from you. Whence thus? For it is said, and saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. That's uh, Obadiah 121. Israel asked God, Master of the universe, how long shall we remain subjected to him? He replied, Until the day comes of which it is written, There shall step forth a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Numbers 24:17. When a star shall step forth from Jacob and devour the stubble of Esau, whence this? for it is said and the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph, Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble and they shall kindle in them and devour them and there shall not be any remaining in the house of Esau Obadiah 1:18 God said at that time I will cause my kingdom to shine forth and I will reign over them as it is said, and Savior shall come up on the Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So here you have not only the uh, rising of the, or the shining forth of the light, but you see that in Isaiah 9 5, they're saying, I have yet to raise up the Messiah, as it is written, for a child is born to us. So they did see Isaiah 9 5 as a messianic prophecy. And the whole idea of a light shining in the darkness, that is in the first two verses of Isaiah 9, um, are Messianic. Is that too. You, you get that? You understand that? Thus, an early understanding of the Isaiah 9 text indicates that it was viewed as a Messianic prophecy, and it is beyond doubt that Matthew understood the light of Isaiah 9 1 through 2 as referring to the Messiah. When he says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. What was the light that they saw? It was Yeshua. Moreover, the fact that Yeshua's ministry encompassed the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali gave a further link to the manner in which he saw Isaiah's prophecies fulfilled in Yeshua. It is also of interest that Zebulun Zebulun and Naphtali were the first to be taken into exile, as I've said. And thus it was fitting that the light of redemption should first be seen in these regions. But it is the phrase Galilee of Gentiles that is perhaps the most important to Matthew. While Galilee was in ancient times populated by a majority of non-Jews, and may still have had a large non-Jewish population in the time of Yeshua, there is plenty of evidence to show a strong Jewish population there. In other words, if Yeshua is going to the Galilee, and the Galilee is pretty much populated by Gentiles, then what is to be made of his his admonition to his disciples don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost house of Israel? I mean, that, that was the first question that came to me. But uh, after more uh, searching, it was clear that there was a strong Jewish population there in the first century. Moreover, while there were surely regional rivalries, and while Galilee may have remained under the pejorative connotation of being inferior in terms of community, piety, and halakha, we should resist the notion that regional communities were monolithic in their religious and halakhic perspectives. Let's face it. The Galil was not highly favored. You know, it's like what Tacomans say about Seattle and what Seattle says about Tacoma, Right? I mean, can any good think come out of Seattle and Tacoma? Thinks uh, that's what we think, and Seattle thinks that Tacoma's uh, that we're all country bumpkins down here, and we just we just live a low life. Um, so there there are regional rivalries, no doubt about it. Um, but and and I, I give you one reference in the Ushelami that basically says the same thing. You know that you don't trust people in the Galil. They don't know the Torah. They're gonna you know so forth and so on. The fa- but the, the fact that, that the following destruction of the temple in 70, many of the Pharisaic leaders retreated to the north, right? In fact, where where did, uh, where did was it prophesied that the Sanhedrin would be reconstituted? In Tiberias. Why? Well, that's because that's the last place that a bona fide Sanhedrin met. And that's in the Galil. So, I mean... The idea that, that, that there wasn't a strong Jewish and even a strong religious Jewish presence in the, in the Galilee just isn't right. Uh, since they were warmly received would indicate that a substantial and religious Jewish population existed there. But what we can see is that Matthew has the end of the story in mind as he writes the beginning. While Yeshua had declared that his mission was specifically to the lost sheep of Israel, he nonetheless always envisioned the gathering of the Gentiles as promised in the Abrahamic Covenant. As such, throughout his ministry, he gives strong portents of the ultimate goal that all mankind should see and come to the light. For Matthew, this is a central theme, even if its reality does not occur until after the passion and ascension of the Messiah. The point is that Yeshua, as presented by Matthew as the promised Redeemer, is attentive not only to the manner in which he would draw Israel to himself, but also how the Gentiles would be gathered into the people of Israel in accordance with the prophetic promises. Moreover, it is clear that Yeshua does not envision two separate groups, Jews and Gentiles, redeemed through two different divine actions, but that He intended through His own redemptive work to gather both into covenant made secure by the Almighty. I, I it just—it just is. I think um, I, I know every era at some point thinks they're living in the last days, right? If you read history, you know that when it was year uh, one thousand, and they were. Going into 1001, everybody thought it was the end of the world, and uh, literally they were ready all to be, you know, the prophecies had been made that it was the end. Well, of course it wasn't the end. Same thing happened in our era, right? When 2000, uh, or was it when 1999 rolled into 2000, or was it when 2000? Yeah, it was both. It was both. Okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody was storing up their, uh, I mean, uh, there were people like Chuck Missler that basically had said, this is it. I mean, he had. I mean, he had just come right out and said, "This is it. Just get ready. This is it." And uh, you know, any of us who had had even a uh, modicum of, pro, of computer programming knew full well that you can take a clock and change it on your computer. So, you know, if you thought your computer was going to crash, you just told the computer that it was really 1999 and didn't know any different. It was stupid, um, and of course, nothing happened. But. Okay, all that to say this, it still feels to me like there are certain things happening in our time that haven't happened before. So without being uh, too prophetic in this, because I'm not a prophet and I'm not even the son of a prophet, but without being too prophetic, it seems to me that there are things happening in our day that hadn't happened before. And the primary one is that you have a return of the Jews to the land in a way that has not happened before, since the time they were driven out in in the early centuries. It still amazes me that Israel, this little piece of real estate, I mean, when you look at that postage stamp nation on a globe or in a world map, you you have to think to yourself, why in the world is everyone so concerned with that piece of real estate? It's about the size of New Jersey, for crying out loud has no oil that they can find. They keep saying they're going to find oil. They don't find oil. It doesn't have huge mineral deposits except in the Dead Sea, which is it's very, very difficult to extract and, and actually use. And when they're doing that, they're causing other kinds of problems. Um, water distribution is a huge hassle. Um, the only reason that it, that it is what it is is because God continues to bless uh, uh, Israel there. That's the only reason. And yet, isn't it amazing that that is the focal point? I mean, can you go one day in the news without reading something about Israel and the Palestinians and so forth? I mean, it's just amazing to me. Well, the fact that there is a nation that, that exists there now that didn't exist before 1948, uh, the fact that there is a continual return of Jews to the land from from all over the world tells me that there's something Something that's going on. And with that in mind, it, I, am, I just continue to be amazed at how, and you cannot, you cannot describe it in any other way than a direct work of the Spirit of God in connection with His Scriptures, that all over the world there are people who are starting to ask the hard questions, at least hard for them, about Torah, about Israel, about who they are, what their relationship is with Israel all of those questions when I was up at Edmonton there were people there was you know roughly 100 people there from all over Canada and I would sit and talk with these people and I would say how you know how did you what happened why aren't you just part of the church you used to be part of and inevitably you would get these well I was reading my Bible one day and all of a sudden I asked myself the question why aren't we doing this why did we stop keeping the Sabbath you know what is my relationship to Israel? And you th- you're thinking to yourself, people have been reading the Bible for 2,000 years. And, I mean, longer, but I mean reading the, the Bible as we know it for, for almost 2,000 years. So, why all of a sudden are people in the church starting, not because somebody like me or you or anyone else is going to them and saying, look, this is important, you have to think about it. That's not why. You know, in the Philippines, uh, in Korea, in Japan, uh, in South America, in Central America, even in Australia, which is I think mostly populated by no never mind. Uh, um, it's, um, it's just amazing to me. It's just absolutely amazing to me and it, it it has to tell it tells me something, I think, that there's a preparation for the ingathering for the final ingathering of Gentiles. and and, and I think that the message of the gospel Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is just as relevant today as ever. So, from that time on, Yeshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, uh, I'll, I can just summarize this. Yeshua's message is no different than Yohanan's. It's exactly, the, it's word for word the same message. And 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 Matthew is telling us that even though Yohanan is now imprisoned, the message hasn't changed, even in the lips of our master. He says, Preach and say, from that time on, Yeshua began to preach and say. Well, preach is, is a word in the Greek which means to herald, to, to cry out and say. It's not two different things. It's just the way that the Hebrew would, would, would talk about direct discourse. And what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a call for repentance in light of the coming kingdom of heaven. What is repentance? Repentance is a recognition that what you are doing is wrong. And you say, you admit with God, that it is wrong, and you turn from it and walk away from it. You turn around and stop doing what you were doing. It starts with the heart, but it always involves the feet. It should arrest our attention that quite often in modern Christendom, the message of the gospel hardly matches that of our Master. I dare say, if you were to ask the majority of people who are involved in, in Christian evangelism today and you were to look at the materials that they hand out or that they send out or the things that they would say in their campaigns, uh, evangelistic campaigns and so forth, I dare say you, you most often than not, you will not hear the message of repentance. You know, the, the, what was made perhaps most famous was the four spiritual laws, right? And You know what I'm talking about when I say four spiritual laws? Well, the four spiritual laws was an easy way to get somebody saved. And that's the way it was presented. And what was the first one? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, you, you, you can go through the four spiritual laws and you don't have to repent. You can say, well, I sinned, but you don't have to repent of it, at least as it's, as, as it's initially projected. That was not the message of Yohanan. It was not the message of Yeshua. Repent. In the time when the gospel is offered to the public as a means of fulfilling one's dream or overcoming life's burdens, nothing is of greater importance than to be reminded that at the heart of the gospel is the matter of Repentance. Any gospel message that deletes this vital ingredient is woefully deficient. You know, we think that if, and that's because I think, again, I'm talking about it in general in modern Christendom, we have so f- been so far removed from a sense of God's sovereignty and his ability to do all of his holy will on earth and in heaven. And we somehow think that it is our obligation to sell the gospel. And once we come to the point where we say it's our obligation to sell the gospel, we have to come up with a good sales pitch. You know, most of the sales advertising, you know, if they're selling a car, they don't say, um, uh, brand new 2006 Lexus, it's a lemon, right? I mean, you don't sell any cars that way. You know, if if, if you're trying to sell a condo and you say, condo for sale, and by the way, before you can buy this, you have to fix the foundation, you have to fix the, the, the roof and all the plumbing. I mean, you wouldn't sell any condos, right? So whatever things in the product are not all that advantageous, you cover them up with something with all of the other things. So how do you so you know you know deep down inside, you know repentance is part of the gospel, but you don't want to put that up front. They're not going to buy it. Yeah, well, that's because what they found out in the time of the Great Awakening and even in the time of the Reformation early on, was that when they preached the gospel as God had given it, even though it came across as something nobody would ever accept. When God's spirit moved, people accepted it by the droves. And we see that in, the, in, in, in Acts, right? I mean, here's Peter. Think of the message that Peter's preaching. You, by wicked hands, crucified, the son of glory. And they didn't take up stones to stone him. They were all cut in their hearts. You see, so if the Spirit of God is the one who is bringing the reality, then all you have to do is give the message as God wants you to give it. The bringing of the fruit is up to Him. You give the message the way He wanted it, and then you leave the outcome to Him. You mess with the message, it, 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 ruins, it ruins the whole thing. Because somewhere down the way here, I, I quote this, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah. Why? For it... That is, the gospel of Messiah is the power of God that results in salvation to everyone who believes. It's not my dressing it up so that you'll buy it, so it'll be okay with you. It's giving the message as God intends it, and that's what He uses to bring those He has chosen to Himself. Yes, the comment is made all great revivals started with repentance. Absolutely. As long as the message of the gospel is given saying you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that's not the gospel. You can't come to God unless you, unless you have come to the, the end of yourself. And that's not the message that's being preached. Even some of the great evangelists, and I don't want to name any names, but even some of the great evangelists, even though they gave oftentimes a gospel message, their message was many times and what we, what I would call easy believism. You know, take your card, sign your name on it, put it in the box. If you've done that, you're on your way to heaven. Hallelujah. You know, and, and what do they hear after that? I don't know. Maybe not anything. All right. Well, we have a uh, to end up with, we have an illustration of the gospel. Now, as Yeshua was walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Shimon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting it into the sea, for they were fishermen. Beginning in this verse and continuing through verse 22, we have the call of Yeshua to four of his Talmudim. Many have seen the parallels to the call of Elisha by Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Elijah is traveling. He finds Elisha plowing with oxen. He puts his mantle upon Elisha as a sign of the prophetic call. And Elisha responds with a request to say farewell to his father and mother. And then he would follow him, exact same terms that we have in the Gospels. And finally, Elisha follows or becomes a disciple of Elijah. While the parallels are obvious, there is one important difference. Elijah gives permission for Elisha to say farewells. While Yeshua, in at least one instance, tells one disciple to follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's really been a stumbling block for some people. I mean, doesn't the Torah tell you that you're supposed to honor your father and mother and isn't one of the things that you do when you honor your father and mother, at least one of the last things you do is give them a proper burial? Well, we'll talk about that when we we come there in chapter 8. While there are other explanations to Yeshua's words at this point, it seems warranted to say that Yeshua's demands for discipleship were heightened in the light of the kingdom of heaven that was quickly approaching. The urgency of the coming kingdom required equal urgency for in undivided loyalty among Yeshua's disciples. And I, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Maybe that's a little overstated, but I think the same thing is true in our time. You know, I, I was talking with somebody today, and um, he basically is a, a strong believer in the Lord. His wife's strong believer in the Lord. Raised their kids in the church. The kids are just off doing their own thing. I got an email yesterday from a homeschooling mom. Um, asking that uh, that question that is so often asked of me, I wonder why, uh, about whether there's such a thing as free will or not, and, um, and and the reason she was concerned was because she's homeschooling mom, she's in a homeschooling co-op, and I don't even know what region of the country this is, not around here, um, and she said, uh, out of the five families in the co-op, the other four families, all of their kids, all of them are rebellious. One of them has declared himself homosexual. One family has, one of their daughters is now pregnant out of wedlock. They're all homeschooling families. And you're thinking, you know, okay, we're in desperate times. We are in desperate times. We have been lulled to sleep because uh, our society has moved so quickly down the path of unrighteousness that we don't really have a mark anymore, a watermark to, uh, you know, to measure ourselves with. So I think the same thing is true here is that, that, that discipleship in our times is going to require a far greater commitment in some ways than it did, you know, 100 years ago. And we're going to have to say no to things that that we w- otherwise might not have to say no to. We're going to have to have a determination that is stronger, perhaps, in some areas. And I think that's what what, what we see. It is interesting that Yeshua chooses his disciples... In apparent distinction from the rabbinic dictum of Oat 1 6, Yehoshua ben Parachiah says, Choose a teacher for yourself and get yourself a fellow disciple and give everybody the benefit of the doubt. So, what, from, a, from a rabbi's standpoint, what is a young man supposed to do? Choose a master. In our case, in Yeshua's case, it's opposite. Yeshua chooses his disciples. This difference highlights the sense of mission that Yeshua doubtlessly had. Not only would he choose Talmudim, but he would also send them out to accomplish his mission. You see, the disciples that he was making were not simply so that they could uh, 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 reproduce his teaching. They were being chosen so that they could complete his mission. Which is what? What is Yeshua's mission? That in Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He wasn't going to be able to do that on his own. The two brothers that Yeshua encounters as he walked along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee were Peter and Andrew. Matthew alerts us to the fact that Peter was called Simon or Shimon uh, in the Hebrew, given a popular etymology in Genesis 29:33 of the Lord has heard. There's really nothing, however, in this name that would indicate the, the word Lord or God is there. The name Peter, Petros in the Greek, means rock and was the Greek equivalent of the Aramaic Kepha. Matthew never... Includes the name Kepha, but always refers to the apostle as Peter or Simon. Why, I wonder, because he is talking to Jews. You would think that Matthew would use Kepha. Of course, maybe Shimon was sufficient as the Hebrew name. Why would why would uh, Shimon have had a Greek name, Petros? Well, it's nothing different than, the, than our times where a Jewish person, you know, uh, maybe his name is uh, Matityahu. So when he goes to... Uh, you know, Simon and Schuster, and, and uh, you know, asks for a job, you know, they say, what's your name? Well, he doesn't want to say Matityahu because nobody can pronounce that. So he says it's Tom, you know, or something. You know, he takes, he takes a name that, uh, that would be normal within the culture. Same thing here. Yeah, Andrew the same way. We don't even know what a- Andrew's Hebrew name was. He does not figure in significantly to the gospel narratives. According to John, Andrew was a former disciple of John the Baptist. Was Peter also? We don't know for sure. But Andrew was. So what would that tell us about Andrew? He already knew about Yeshua. He had to. If he was if he was the disciple of Yohanan, he would have known about Yeshua. If by no other means than by listening to, to uh, Yohanan. Our text does not give us any insight into Yeshua's previous contact with Peter and Andrew. How then did he choose them to be his Talmudim? It seems very probable that he did have previous acquaintance with them and their family, but it is also possible that here we see Yeshua's ability to know about a person without having formally met them. Right? I mean, he does that elsewhere. Nathaniel and so forth. When Yeshua encounters the brothers, they were casting a net into the sea. The word um, amphiblestron, which is used only here in the Apostolic Scriptures, denotes a circular net used for casting. How big was a net like that, uh, Buzz? So maybe maybe uh, 20 feet... 20, 30 feet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different word in Luke. It's a different Greek word in Luke. Right. So I was just asking our resident uh, fisheries expert here about this net. It's a circular net for casting. To the edge of the net were attached small stones which made it sink quickly, engulfing the fish. At least that's what I read. Is that, Does that sound right? When the net was drawn from a rope tied to the middle, the heavier stones would be gathered together and, feed, and keep the fish entrapped. Now, that means you're you're not catching big fish in this thing. Yeah, I mean if they were if they were feeding close to the shore, but you're not. Are you casting this out of a boat from the beach? Right, from the beach. I, it, it appears that way because Yeshua's walking on the beach. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, thus, Peter and Andrew made their living by fishing, as the text specifically says. The purpose for Matthew's specific note of their occupation is twofold. First. It sets up the meaning for his calling them to be his Talmudim, for he would send them out as fishers of men. In other words, that fishers of men doesn't have any meaning for us if we don't see it in the context of him having called them from their own fishing. In this metaphor, their occupation does not change, just the objects netted change, right? Okay, now now you're catching fish? Follow me, I'm going to make you catch people. Secondly, the fact that Matthew specifies their occupation, makes the parallel to the Elijah and Elisha pericope as well as emphasizing that their becoming Yeshua's disciples would require a break with everyday affairs. It would be costly in more ways than one to become a disciple of the Master. I think all of us have, at times, um, had to make those challenging uh, choices with regard to careers, and being a disciple of Yeshua always comes into that. At least it should. You know, where do we meet? What is our community? How how will my spiritual life uh, be impacted by what I'm about to, what job I'm going to take, and so forth and so on. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The first thing that arrests our attention is the fact that the master is not giving the two brothers an invitation. Do you notice he doesn't say, would you like to follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? His words are given as an unconditional command. In the Tanakh, it is the Almighty who issues such demands regarding a prophetic call. Here, Yeshua likewise functions as the sovereign who has the right to issue demands to those he meets. We may presume that Peter and Andrew were well acquainted with Yeshua, certainly so on Andrew's part since he was a disciple of Yochanan, for their response of obedience was positive and immediate. It wouldn't be wise to just take somebody you didn't know and say, yeah, sure, I'll drop everything I have and follow you. That wouldn't be wisdom. Unless we could say maybe that the Spirit of God did some special work in them at that time and gave them an understanding too. But All things considered, they must have known who he was and what his message was. The demand of the master involved two aspects, following him by which is meant to become his disciple and thus to emulate him both in life and teaching, and two, to be prepared for a mission of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom by which they would gather in those who were called. The order of the twofold aspect of discipleship is obviously important. They could not fulfill the mission of being fishers of men until they had sufficiently understood the message of Yeshua and were able to give it to others. And such an understanding could not be entirely gleaned simply by hearing the words of the Master. Here's where we fail in our Western society. We think that if a person, whoever it is, sits in enough classes, they're ready. They're not ready. They're not ready until they live out what they're learning. It was in the course of life and in the manner in which Yeshua demonstrated the gospel through his works and interaction with others that the disciples would be able to see the gospel unfettered by decades of traditions that had, in many cases, shielded its light from the eyes of Israel. We should also note that the metaphor our master uses of being fishers of men is not something that was a well-used metaphor. I could not find any parallel in any rabbinic literature. Now, I'm saying it's not there, as I only have limited ability to scour the, the rabbinic literature, but I couldn't find anything. But it fit the situation of Peter and Andrew perfectly. For they were well aware of what fishing entailed. But it is important for us to recognize that that the fishing they were doing was with a net, not with hook and bait. The giving of the good news of the kingdom was not a snaring of men into something they otherwise would have avoided. You know, like bait the hook, get them in, and then tell them, Oh, by the way, you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. It was not baiting the hook to make the gospel appear appealing, when in reality it had a pointed barb at its core. Rather, in the metaphor of fishing for men... The gospel itself was the net by which God would gather those he had chosen into his family. This is affirmed later by Paul when he wrote regarding the gospel, as I already quoted, uh, Romans 1.16. You see, the gospel, as it is presented in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles, whenever it is presented, is predicated upon God's sovereignty. I'm sorry to continue to pound on that, but that's the reality of it. You don't go giving the gospel in some kind of tricking tricking way to try to get as many people in as you can. And the better salesman is the better evangelist. That's not the way it works. The gospel is here the metaphor of a net. The net goes out and gathers all those who are in the place that, uh, that the net falls. And what is the net? It is the gospel. It doesn't have any bait on it. It gathers in those whom God has chosen. It is the work of the Spirit in connection with the proclamation of the gospel that brings about repentance toward God and faith in Yeshua the Messiah. The giving of the gospel, then, as pictured in the metaphor of fishing, is not one of enticement, but of the sovereign power of God, whereby, through the gospel itself, those who are chosen are drawn to faith and rescued. And if you have that perspective of the gospel, it changes the way that you present the gospel. You are not afraid to present the gospel in its purest form. Sure, you're doing it with love. Sure, you're doing it with gentleness. Absolutely, you're, you're, you're gaining the ability to speak to somebody before you, before you speak to them, if at all possible. All of those things, of course. We persuade men, Paul said. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, what fueled the Reformation, what fueled uh, the Great Awakening, and you can read this in, in Jonathan Edwards' uh, works, uh, what fueled these was a recognition, that God is going to have a group of people that no one can number. He has determined to do that. That has already been settled. Now, what, what, what part do we play in that then? He has chosen us to be those to take the good news. And through the giving of the good news, He would draw those who were His unto Himself. Our success is guaranteed, not because of the way that we present the gospel, but because of the, what, what He has done. And that gives power, and it gives perseverance. You can read the biographies of Adoniram Judson and William Carey and Jonathan Edwards and and Hudson Taylor and so forth and so on. You can read the, the biographies of these men and women who were the pioneers in quote unquote modern missions, and every one of them, to a last one, believed this, and it was that which caused them to maintain through thick and thin. So you know, look, you know, when when um, Adoniram Judson came home after ten years, was it China? Yeah, okay, China. Uh, when he came home home the first time after 10 years, he had not one, quote-unquote, convert. Not one. You take a modern mission board, and a missionary comes home after 10 years on the field without one convert, he's probably not going to go back. But Adonai Judson didn't, that wasn't his his thing. That was God's work. His work was simply to plant the seed, just to give the gospel in its purity. And I think a good metaphor for that is what we see in the casting of the net. Uh, I think too often in our modern world, uh, American world, at least, we think of fishing as too much rod and reel with the uh, hook and bait. And we try to make that metaphor work with the gospel. That's not what we're talking about.
0: You've been listening to the commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource president and instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at torahresource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse by verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.